2, and Pentecost, when the promised Holy Spirit did, in fact, come. And uh, we also then got to find what most people skip. They skip chapter 1 and go right to 2 and talk about Pentecost and Peter's sermon and the fact that 3,000 were saved. Then we moved on last week to chapter 3 when uh, Peter and John were on their way into through the beautiful gate and they stopped and uh, performed a miracle and that is they they gave a lame beggar the ability to stand and walk and not only did he stand he was leaping and jumping and and shouting praises to God in the sight of a lot of people that were on their way to the temple and that brings us to what we're going to talk about today, the initiation of the persecution of the church. Opposition, it's often referred to as in scripture, but it was the persecution of the church. When you're faced with opposition for the sake of Jesus, what, what are your options? Well, the first time that Peter encountered opposition, he denied he even knew Jesus. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many might have even found themselves guilty of that? But the second time Peter was faced with opposition, he boldly defended Christ against the highest court in Israel. What was the difference? The difference was the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we've been studying so far in Acts. Whenever you run into a Christian who is surprised by the fact that they experience trouble in life. I don't want to insult anybody, but you're probably talking to a Christian who hasn't read their Bible very carefully. James 1 tells us not to be surprised when we encounter trials. John, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus told us that if his followers, if we're his followers, that we will experience the same troubles, the same persecution, that he experienced. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul told Timothy that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, some folks might look around today and say, well, we're not experiencing persecution. Let me suggest that maybe you need to look a little closer because it, it has begun in this country, throughout the free world, but even in America. Uh, it didn't take Peter and John long to discover firsthand what it meant to suffer as a follower of Christ just by starting to minister in his name. See, the apostles were, they were absolutely reviled for the sake of Christ. 
But they took those opportunities to point the enemies of the gospel to Jesus. Almost immediately, they found themselves under arrest. Remember last week we talked about they walking through the gate and they found this lame beggar lying at the gate. And they looked right at him. And he thought, okay, I'm going to get something today. <laughs> and he did. But it wasn't in his cup. Peter looked at him and told him to stand and rise and walk. And he found himself able to do that. Because God healed his body. And he healed his brain. Because not only did he give his feet and his ankles and his legs the strength to stand. He gave his brain the information it needed to tell the muscles how to do that. He hadn't walked ever in his life. And yet he knew how to walk. He knew how to leap, how to jump, and how to praise God. And we've all heard it said that there's a first time for everything. And Peter and John are just about to get their first taste of persecution, just for following Christ. The Jewish leaders who had executed Jesus were the very same people who were now coming after Peter and John. And that shouldn't be surprising, I guess. And Peter and John weren't surprised either if they were paying attention to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 13, verse 9, where he told them, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Don't be surprised. Now let there be no misunderstanding this was not a casual confrontation that we're talking about here. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees all came upon Peter and John greatly annoyed, or in the New King James it says greatly disturbed. In fact, in the first six verses, Luke identifies at least 11 groups who were in opposition to these two apostles. The priests, the captain of the guard... Sadducees, rulers, elders, scribes, Annas, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and members of the high priest's family. So I want us to look at verse 1 in more detail about Peter and John's accusers. Verse 1 tells us, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. The priests. That's a reference to a class of priests who lived in Jerusalem, watching over the temple functions. These priests had been intimately involved in the persecution of Jesus. Secondly, the captain of the temple guard. The Romans, although they were basically in charge of Israel, the country, they had delegated the policing of the temple back to the Jews. And this captain of the guard was a sort of chief of police. And he was second only to the high priest in terms of overall authority in Jerusalem. And then the third group are the Sadducees. Now this was a, a small group, a relatively small group of uh, sort of a religious political party. It, it consisted largely of the upper class of the Jews in Jerusalem. They had money. They were educated. And they had gained the, the good graces, if you will, of their Roman occupiers. 
They were the elite upper crust of Jerusalem. And during the period between the Old and New Testaments, the Sadducees had, had kind of evolved into a very unprincipled political nobility who would do anything to maintain their position. And boy, I can't help myself, but no, that sounds just like our two political parties of today, doesn't it? It's not surprising then that they were right in the middle of the persecution of Peter and John. And they didn't want anyone to to eclipse or overshadow their status. Well, what were the charges that they brought again? What were the indictments? Again, verse 1 and going into verse 2. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Verse 2 tells us that Peter and John were arrested because they were teaching the people and because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, this includes basically three charges. First, they were unqualified to be teaching. You remember the elite folks of Jerusalem considered Peter and John and the rest of their ilk to be from the boondocks of Israel, the region of Galilee, back in Acts chapter 2, when they were speaking in numerous languages. It says, are these not all Galileans? Like, how can these uneducated dolts be doing this? They were just a bunch of backwater fishermen, not rabbinical students or scholars. Look at verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. These guys weren't qualified to teach on any theological subject, according to these academic elitists. The idea that wisdom from God comes only from being taught in seminary is an idea that we even still struggle with today. But verse 13 also tells us that the apostles' accusers quote, recognized that they had been with Jesus. And that is exactly why they were qualified to teach. Secondly, they were talking about an unpopular person. The Jewish leaders likely thought that this whole Jesus problem had been taken care of when they crucified him. But now here his disciples were drawing the same kinds of crowds that Jesus did. Now, if they'd been drawing these crowds, talking about anyone else, they might not have been bothered. But promoting the name of the man that these leaders had just declared off limits was more than they were willing to take. And then thirdly, the third charge is they were teaching unacceptable doctrine. Matthew chapter 22 and Acts 23, we find that there was a fundamental belief of the Sadducees that there was no bodily resurrection. So for Peter and John to preach to a crowd that Jesus was in fact resurrected from the dead was just totally unacceptable. So what happened when these guys were arrested? It says that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. How do you shut somebody up that you don't want 
out speaking things you don't want spoken? You throw them in the hoose gal and lock the door and turn out the lights and wait till tomorrow. And that's just exactly what they did here. There are two things of note here that happened when John and Peter were arrested. First of all, it was their punishment. It was too late in the day to convene any kind of course of legal action for Peter and John. So they just put them in the closet, turned out the lights. They hid them away. But secondly, and maybe somewhat surprisingly, the second thing of note here is the progress of the new church. While Peter and John went to jail, the church itself continued to soar to new highs. According to verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word did what? Believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Now remember, we were just talking a week ago how the number had swelled up after Peter's sermon from 120, by, swelled up by 3,000 people to 3,120, and now it's up to 5,000. And that's just the men. With women and children, who knows how many it was. Maybe three times that amount. But this is the last time in the book of Acts that a specific number of members of the church is listed. From this point on, the numbers just got too big. And from this point forward, Luke just used adjectives instead of numbers in speaking of church growth. You know, if the church in America were to experience true persecution, I think we'd also see an increase in the church. And maybe that is perhaps best illustrated uh, for those of us who can remember 911. <laughs> Remember, I don't, know, I don't know what happened here in Cambria. I know in, in Fresno, after 911, the church attendance just swelled. It, it bloomed. It was incredible. Every church in town was talking about how many people were coming back to church. It seems like a, a recurring theme that whenever persecuted, those who know the Lord feel the need to get a little closer to his family. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily be one that would long for more persecution. But it has always caused the church to grow. Always. Beginning here in the book of Acts. So like any courtroom drama, after the arrest of Peter and John came their arraignment. Verses 5 and, and following. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? <laughs> then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen.
Wow. There are three aspects of this, this arraignment that I think we need to, to, to look at carefully. Who had them arrested? The question that was posed to them and the information they gave in response to the question. Who were their accusers? <coughs> Excuse me. The day following Peter and John's arrest, the Sanhedrin was convened to hear their case. That's 71 members representing three different groups of Jews. Those groups consisted of the rulers of the chief priests, the elders of prominent families and clans and tribes of Israel, and three scribes, lawyers. (laughs) They're always there, right? The scribes were those guys that were experts in the law of Moses. And while Caiaphas was the current high priest, Annas was there because he had been the high priest and still held a lot of influence. Uh, it mentions John and Alexander, and frankly, we don't, from Scripture and from history, we don't know who those guys are, and they're not mentioned later. But altogether, this is the very same council that had decided the fate of Jesus a couple of months ago. And now they gathered to examine his disciples, and they did it with this primary question in verse 7. By what power... Or by what name did you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this miracle? You notice that they made no attempt to say that nothing happened. If you look down at verse 14, we find that the healed beggar is actually standing right there with them. And the men of the Sanhedrin, I'm sure, knew this man as well. They had to walk past him on their way to the temple. They knew who he was. They knew they had seen him out there for who knows how long, begging at the gate. And here he was standing before them. So they didn't bother to deny that a miracle had happened. But their question, their question was a wonderful setup. Any preacher or any evangelist would love to get a setup question like that. Uh, Please, guys, would you tell us what you believe and why the numbers of your followers in Jerusalem are growing so rapidly? Well, that's essentially what they asked, and Peter, Peter saw it as a cue to launch into his answer. Now, again, his sermon is a model sermon. Any preacher would have been proud to deliver this sermon. It had an introduction, had three points, a conclusion, and he did it all in 90 Greek words. I don't even know 90 Greek words. But in verse 8, we find perhaps the best thing about Peter's sermon. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he launches. He didn't deliver his answer to them in his own power. He delivered his answer to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, Jesus had already told his disciples they didn't have to worry about this kind of a situation. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, 
that has to be a relief. Don't get me wrong here. It's not uh, Jesus giving permission for his disciples or for pastors or any other teacher to slack off on the study and the preparation for delivering his word. But they were words of comfort so his disciples would know that the Spirit would be with them when they were suffering for his sake. In verse 9, Peter's introduction to his sermon is just downright righteous sarcasm. Now, my mother would tell me there's no such thing as righteous sarcasm. Sarcasm is just one of those things you don't use. But it was here. If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? That's the New King James. And from there he goes on to make three points that were very painful points to his Jewish interrogators. Point number one was the Jews' responsibility in Christ's crucifixion. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He didn't say whom the Romans crucified, did he? Oh, remember the furor that caused when the passion of the Christ was released? And the Jewish community was pretty upset that they thought Mel Gibson had pointed the finger at, at the Jews rather than the Romans for Christ's persecution. But here Peter says, you Jews, you crucified Christ. These are the very, not, this is not just the same group. This is the very same men that were responsible for Jesus' death. Now, to me, Peter's courage here <laughs> in addressing him that way was humbling and inspiring. The courage to speak to them that way. He turns things around on his accusers here, and himself, he becomes the prosecutor of the accused. And this is from the man who just two months ago denied he even knew Jesus Christ. What a transformation! And it's an incredible transformation that is caused by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now this very sermon is one that maybe we should all... You don't have to devote the whole thing to memory, I suppose, but it's a good one to bring to mind when you are faced with the need to speak boldly about your Lord. Pastor Dave Jeremiah tells of a story he read about a circuit-riding preacher in Illinois that found out that President Andrew Jackson would be present in one of his Sunday services. And the church deacons asked the preacher to be careful not to say anything that would offend the president. When the preacher got in the pulpit, he started by announcing, I understand that President Jackson is here, and I have been requested to guard my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> that was his guarded remarks. <laughs> well, the audience was kind of shocked. But after the service, President Jackson reportedly went to the preacher and said, You know, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Boldness is never a risk when it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and true to the Word of God. Amen? 
The second point that he made was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Continuing on in verse 10, he said, Let it be known to all of you, to all the people, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In other words, don't miss this. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now we've discussed before that Peter's second point here is predictable and consistent. The resurrection. Because these guys, every time they spoke, spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They never allowed Jesus' death to be separated from the resurrection. They were two sides of the same coin, one meaningless without the other one. They were one coin. And also, don't forget, again, this council is filled with the Sadducees, men who believe in there not being a resurrection, which is, of course, why they're sad, you see. I hope there's somebody out here that hasn't heard that before. <laughs> so Peter is walking, he's walking on thin ice with these guys. But he was not intimidated. He spoke the truth and left the results to God. He didn't care if they threw him back in a cell and let him decay there. He spoke the truth and he spoke it boldly and figured God will take care of it from here. And then his third point. The role of God's sovereignty in confounding their opposition. In verse 11, it says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, this final point was deeply theological, and it's probably one that had the scribes scrambling for their scrolls, because they know they've heard that someplace. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the stone that the builders, the Jews, rejected, crucified. And he has been made by God to be the chief cornerstone of the church. These Jewish leaders, especially the Sadducees, thought they'd already crushed the Jesus movement. But Peter is telling them that God was involved in the whole thing the whole time. And it was his sovereign purpose to confound the actions of the Jews and exalt something they had discarded on a theological garbage heap. He quoted Psalm 118, verse 22. That's what the scribes were looking for. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now that verse originally was referred to a king or maybe Israel herself being deposed by enemies, and then later exalted by God. But later in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quoted the very same verse to refer to himself. And then here Peter does that very same thing. He applied the passage which the Jewish leaders knew well to Jesus of Nazareth, whom they knew they had crucified only two months ago. No matter how old they were, they hadn't forgotten it yet but whom God had raised from the dead and now was exalted by the healing of a paralyzed man in his name. Now, Peter inserted a couple of words in this quote. The two words, by you, who was rejected by you, who was crucified by you. And he identifies the members of the Sanhedrin as the builders who had done the rejecting 
of the stone which God had now made the chief cornerstone of Israel. God sovereignly ordained that Christ's death would result in his being lifted up above all. Hmm. I'm sure that hall was about as quiet as it is in here right now. You could have heard a pin drop. The smartest, most powerful Jewish men in Israel had just been silenced by a common fisherman from Galilee because he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So what? That's that's a great, powerful story. What does it mean to us today? Well, Peter's conclusion in verse 12 is, my so what for the morning? Read that with me. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The council must have probably thought that Peter and John and the beggar were on trial that day. But the truth is, Jesus Christ was on trial again. Since he was the source of everything that had happened and had been done for that beggar. Jesus himself taught the disciples in John chapter 14, 6, which I know you know. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The voice that the Sanhedrin was hearing, they thought they had silenced on a wooden Roman cross two months ago. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that would give you the power to be his voice in the ears of those today who would persecute Jesus or who would persecute his church, just as Peter was on that day. And remember this, if you remember nothing else about today, remember this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I pray that each of you has called upon his name for salvation. That you've been willing to admit that you're a sinner. Because we are, all of us. We're all sinners. I would guess most of us, if not all of us, sinners saved by grace. My prayer is that when we walk through those doors, everyone in this room would be a sinner. Saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, it's, um, it's a common thing.